Hey everyone out there, and thanks again for joining us here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. Now at ASAP Now, we tackle all sorts of issues affecting our listeners, ER doctors, you guys. And one of the constant and perpetual ones we talk about, sadly, is ER boarding, which as a lot of people um, on our side say, it's not so much emergency department boarding, it's really hospital boarding because it's an issue that exists beyond just the ER, just that that's where we feel the effects of it a lot. So ASAP has multiple initiatives on this because there is probably not a single ER doctor who isn't personally affected by boarding in some way, shape, or form on their shifts. So we have everything from advocacy initiatives to the recent boarding summit to, of course, the legislative and advocacy uh, conference in May where they talk about boarding to the media initiative of ED boarding frontline stories where you guys actually help share a lot of your stories of how Uh, boarding of patients has been really bad for patient care and in this issue just like most of our issues we comment on in some way the boarding crisis and in this issue dr dark our editor-in-chief and asap president dr terry have a pretty healthy discussion about boarding what it is that is the uh, initiatives that asap has how are we handling mental health or psychiatric boarding in particular And like I mentioned, there is rarely a month that goes by where we don't talk about boarding in some way because it is always top of mind. Now, what I wanted to spend this podcast on for this month was doing a deeper dive on boarding, not because it's a topic that we don't shed light on quite often, but because we actually had a couple special guests who I think thought about boarding in a fairly novel way that may result in different solutions than the typical things we think of. So we hope you check it out and we hope that you come away with maybe just a little more insight on how to address the boarding issue at your hospital. Hey everyone at ASAP Now, thanks again for joining us on this month's episode. Now, ER boarding is something that we have talked about a lot in ASAP, ASAP Now, obviously just in emergency medicine. And we have two guests with us today that I think will offer an interesting perspective. We have first Dr. Peter Vasselio, who is professor and vice chairman at Stony Brook. He is an ER doctor and actually um, pitched this topic and this other guests um, to talk about boarding. And so our other guest is actually uh, Dr. Eugene Lipvac. Now, Dr. Lipvac is a PhD, actually the first um, non-physician, I believe, that we've had on ASAP now, um, at least recently. And uh, he is the president and CEO of the nonprofit Institute for Healthcare Optimization. Now, you may have heard his name before. If not, you may have heard about some of his concepts about healthcare optimization, including ED boarding and elective smoothing. But Dr. Vasselio actually recommended Dr. Litvak to um, come on and talk about some of the root causes of boarding, what that means, how that translates to um, policies and in really meaningful ways. So I think this is a great episode. I want to thank both you guys, Eugene and Peter, for joining us today. Well, thank you, Amy. Perfect. Now, now, so Dr. Vasselio, like I mentioned, you actually um, kind of brought up um, Dr. Litvak for us because I think some of the work that he's done that you've seen was really meaningful to you 
as an ER doctor. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your history. You've been around, um, if you don't mind me saying, you know, you've been around emergency medicine for quite some time about how you saw the boarding discussion and crisis evolving over the past few decades and what you found so impactful about uh, some of Dr. Litvak's works. Amy, before I get into that, I don't want to bury the lead. And the lead is this. There is a solution to our boarding problem. And the solution is something that uh, Eugene will talk about. But I want to tell you what this solution requires. It requires that people do things differently. But if they do things differently, it will not cost anything. It will make it easier for the physician. It will make it better for the patient. It will make it better for the staff. And the hospital will reap tremendous financial benefit from it. So of all the things we've heard talked about, about pouring money into the problem with boarding and pouring uh, resources and more staff that we can't find and more beds that we don't have, I just want that to be the lead for this uh, a podcast. I've been an emergency doc since 1980. Uh, from the first day I worked, we were boarding patients. In fact, we had a special area in the emergency department where we could put admitted boarders. But about every three years, emergency medicine and ASEP discover that we have a boarding crisis and we go forward and get in the news media and in the day where we had magazines, we'd be at the front page of uh, a cover of uh, magazines. But we really weren't offering any solutions other than pouring money into the system. And that was the story for about four decades. Uh, I wrote my first article on boarding in 1987. We had our first statewide conference on the issue at that time with the New York Times in attendance, and it got a lot of news attention, but again, no solution. And as an adolescent specialty really at that time was very little respect we couldn't demand anything of anybody else and it was the concept was that emergency department patients were money losers they were uninsured they were problem patients and really for years our response was let's blame the patient our problem is we have too many unnecessary visits and if they all went away we wouldn't have a problem of uh, uh well, if we're saying that, then no one downstream from us has to do anything, and no one listened to it ex except they understood they could walk away from the problem, except for the insurers who heard loud and clear, oh, look, those emergency docs are saying they got a lot of patients that don't even belong there, so maybe we won't pay for them. Uh, it, it, in my experience, it took about two decades to change the concept from the problem with emergency departments is, is too many unnecessary visits to a problem which was redefined as our problem is that we actually have too many sick patients and we have to care for them and then can't get them out of our department. And it took yet another decade to convince the world that the problem is actually not in the emergency department. It's downstream from the emergency department in the hospital. And I think the hospital industry now fully acknowledges that the problem is that they don't have the capacity, but they don't acknowledge that they misuse the capacity that they have. Even knowing that, what's been our response? Well, the response is uh, the hospital goes, well, we know it's a problem. We know that we don't have any beds. So why don't you do some process improvement thing in the emergency department? Uh, 
So if you have a door-to-doctor time of 25 minutes and you have a CAT scan order to read time of four hours, what's the solution? Let's function. Let's focus on the uh, door-to-doctor time. And that's been sort of our uh, history. Imagine if boarded patients had to be placed in the ORs or the cath labs. Do you think we'd have a problem today? Why is that crazy? It's only crazy because it's part, it's part historical and part cultural. We didn't have a voice. So it got dumped on us, and there's really nothing we could uh, do at this. But what we've done is embrace, in a very deep and cultural way, extreme dysfunction. We'll see people in hallways. We'll see people in uh, uh, tents. We'll see them in waiting rooms. Uh, we've ASAP, and our specialty has never actually clearly stated at any point what our environment should look like. We've abandoned the notion that there should be any benefit to privacy or undressing the patient or having a secure encounter uh, or having an environment which remotely treats people with the dignity that they deserve based on the bills that we send. And I just uh, today was looking at a whole slew of articles about how boarding is bad, how EDs are in a crisis, there are not enough beds, there's not enough staff. One article said, oh, well, here's three fixes. We'll get data. Well, I've been collecting data since uh, 1980. Uh, uh, let's uh, uh, set standards. Uh, we've seen how that works, and usually the standards is how long it takes us to see the quickly to see the patient. Let's create financial incentives, and that's something that, although said, it's not explained how that would work. And then finally, of course, let's get more beds and more staff. Uh, I think basically we have a seven-day-a-week problem with a five-day-a-week solution, and five days a week, eight hours a day represents 24% of the week. So that's how we're trying to deal with this. Now, one of my claims to fame was back in 2001, we started the full-capacity protocol, which allowed us to place some of our boarders, the least sick, in hallways upstairs on inpatient units. We'd put two or three on a unit, and, and uh, it, it did help, but we were still stuck with the sickest. But we've evolved over this period of time, and the patients that we were putting in the hallway, we now put on, on uh, emergency department OBS, the chest pains, the syncopes, the cellulitis, the TIAs. So, but even in, insofar as you use the full capacity protocol, it's a partial solution to a system in failure. And that's where I ran across Litvak stuff, and uh, Eugene stuff, and then met had met him and dove into much more detail about what he was doing, about smoothing of elective cases. And he'll talk about that a, a bit, uh, but I just wanted to sh uh, share with you uh, uh, some data that we collected from the SPARKS data, which is all of the hospital discharges from New York State. So you can look at the day of admission, the day of discharge, and this sort of thing. So. If I have a lot of admissions on one day, but I have the same number of discharges, it's really no harm, no foul, but it doesn't work like this. The system's out of sync. You got a lot of admissions on this day, a lot of discharges on that day. So we looked at 1.5 million admissions to hospitals in New York State, to either medicine or surgery, and divided them into ED versus non-ED admissions. Uh, and there was a heavy skew with the electives. They come in mostly on Mondays and Tuesdays. There's a lot of discharges on Friday. But if you look at the number of admissions minus the number of discharges, 
around the mean, there's a 20% variation above and below the mean over the week statewide. That means if I had a 500-bed hospital, in the beginning of the week, I have 600 patients, and at the end of the week, I have 400 patients. So that leads into the, the incredible value that you can get in improving capacity by smoothing this. So I will pass this on to uh, Eugene, uh, who uh, I think needs to talk about this. Yeah, Eugene, we'd love to hear it because it's like uh, I, I agree with everything um, Dr. Vasilio said. Like we are tired of putting more money, more pizza parties at a boarding crisis that uh, is not really a crisis because it's just our state of affairs. Um and, you know, I, I think all of us want to feel armed when we do talk with our hospital partners about what we can do to help resolve this issue. Uh, thank you, Amy, for inviting me. That's a great opportunity to talk about this issue. Uh, actually, I became interested in deboarding and overcrowding based on my experience taken to the ED my late father many years ago. And always I found it to be overcrowded. My background is operation system analysis and operations management. Some people call it industrial engineering. So I started thinking system-wide. What does it mean? Why it is overcrowded? And uh, here is what I found interviewing other people. Uh, first of all, Peter. Uh, typical hospital bed occupancy census looks like an AKG. You can look uh, at the uh, plot. With multiple peaks and valleys, many years ago, we used to staff at the peak level, so there always tended to be enough staff beds to meet any patient demand. That's what I heard. I never witnessed it myself. Today, none of the hospitals can do staff at the peak uh, for two reasons, at least. First of all, insufficient number of nurses. We have no shortages. And second, insufficient number of funds. Nobody in the world uh, can staff at the peak level today. So typical hospital staffing today is based on the average patient demand. That's how they budget it, based on the average patient demand of the last year. So we staff at the level of mean, about the mean. At the same time, even staffing at the average level costs hospitals huge amount of money. It's in excess of 50% of all the hospital budget going to staffing the floors. And yet demand periodically exceeds it because we have those peaks. So after studying this subject for a while with my colleagues from the Institute for Healthcare Optimization, I found uh, that the statement I can tell about the demand exceeding capacity I was not sure whether demand exceeds capacity. So I came to the conclusion that for sure we can say that demand exceeds mismanaged capacity. Because during the peak, we have a lot of problems. It's not just the overcrowding. It's a lot of medical errors. Nurses are leaving the hospital mostly for these reasons because they are overloaded. Mortality, readmissions, I can continue on and on and on when uh, our peaks exceed our average staffing levels. So as long as those peaks exist, and I would like to stress it, no matter what else we are doing, this is doomed to recur or become worse. 
Again, I would like to stress it, no matter what else do we do, by no means I suggest that that's a panacea to everything uh, in, in terms of idea overcrowding. Of course not. But this is absolutely necessary, although not sufficient, the first step. The, why do we have that? There are two main competitors for hospital beds, ED patients and elective, mostly surgical admissions. If the hospital is short of available beds, preference are always given to surgical patients because of a different level of reimbursement at the expense of the patient boarded in the emergency. Again, whenever we have a peak in surgical admissions, and we do have it regularly, most of the surgeries have been performed Monday through Wednesday, then we have this problem. The only way to address is to smooth the surgical uh, uh, case volumes on a daily basis, make them more or less even during uh, for the weekdays. And and when you when you say smooth, do you mean because I mean all these elective cases are planned in advance too? Like we can't necessarily predict how that balances with say an ED surge, and we're also cognizant, right? Like hospitals uh, run their finances on elective patients, so they're always a little hesitant to cancel elective cases. Like how does that all fit in? By no means, I would suggest that we cancel a single elective surgery. In fact, what does it mean smoothing elective surgeries? If you have a, if you have a road between point A and point B, and you want to send the cars, first scenario, you send 20 cars, then 100, then 10, then 80. And the second scenario, you attach cars to each other and you send them in a steady state flow. Under which scenario you will do, you will send more cars. Of course, under the second. Mm -hmm. So the same is true for surgery. Smoothing surgery means to schedule. I'm talking only about scheduled surgeries. To schedule evenly similar um, uh, volume of elective surgeries on one, uh, uh, for each weekday. Ideally weekend, but I'm not that brave at this point to talk about the weekend. Even if you smooth them uh, for each weekdays, that would, be, would result in a huge uh, outcome. That's what I mean by that, to smooth the peak, to perform similar number of elective, I emphasize elective surgeries. It's up to us how we schedule elective surgeries. It's nothing to do with emergency department, just schedule them evenly. Eugene, but if I could make a comment about that, uh, if, you, if I looked at my own hospital's data, I've looked at some other hospitals' data and the Sparks data, it's all the same. There are somewhat more emergency admissions on a Monday than there is any other day of the week and somewhat of a decline on weekends. There's a huge increase in elective admissions on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday compared to the rest of the week. So if you look at uh, in terms of the need, need for inpatient beds or ICU beds and you want to smooth them across the week, what you do is you look at your operating room and say, this surgeon, instead of operating on a Tuesday, is going to do his hips on a Thursday. And you, you, you schedule the, the, the smoothing so that the OR is used to roughly the same degree. The number of inpatient beds that are needed is roughly the same each day. And the number of ICU beds that are needed uh, each day uh, it, it can be smoothed out. 
And that's the idea of smoothing. It's really just rearranging people's schedules. Now, it's not as easy as it sounds because if I'm a surgeon and my office day is on Thursday and you want me to operate, then I've got to shift my office day to something else. But the results are, for instance, in one of uh, the places that Eugene uh, did this where they did smoothing, the year before smoothing, there were 777 cancellations or rescheduled uh, operations, uh, electives. And in the year after, there were six. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Thank you, Peter. And it, uh, I can tell even more. It's not just rearranging all surgeons' schedule. It's rearranging a few. I'm saying that based on the experience with multiple hospitals that we have, and it's rearranged. Besides, surgeons are also great beneficiaries from that. They have a significant uh, uh, reduced overtime. They have access, much better access to the operating room with elective and emergent surgeries. I can continue on and on and on. So again, uh, examples of multiple hospitals in the US, Canada, UK, demonstrated that all these consequences of those peaks, the overcrowding, the boarding, medical errors, readmissions, mortality, and hospital uh, bottom line, the hospital margin, had been improved by multi-million at every single hospital that smooth elective surgeries. At Cincinnati Children's, they abandoned already budgeted a new tower because they wanted to accommodate those peaks. Once those peaks have been smoothed, they abandoned this project, thereby saving over 100 million plus over 100 million increase in the hospital annual margin. Is there, is there a challenge to, um, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to think about how to say this kindly. If I were a surgeon, I would want my elective cases Monday through Friday because I don't want to come in on the weekends and operate all day, just like the rest of the world in general wants to work nine to five Monday through Friday, which I think is why elective surgeries are not traditionally done on Saturdays, Sundays. So from a med staff perspective, I'm imagining what would happen, knowing that I've never done med staff um, for surgeons, but I would imagine uh, some difficulty, let's say, in convincing surgeons that they need to have a full operating deck on um, Saturday and Sunday, or even if they push it back, right? If they push it to the Thursday or Friday, now they're just rounding longer on Saturday, Sunday, probably. As I said, I, I'm not that brave, although I think it's bad. First of all, we found through the research and multiple tests, then doing the surgeries on Monday, is not going to benefit anybody. Doing the surgeries on Saturday would benefit. But leaving that aside, what I would like to comment on your statement, you said the surgeons prefer to do it Monday through Friday. Honestly, surgeons prefer to do it Monday, Tuesday if possible, if not Wednesday. The reason why that their patients are going to be discharged in two plus days, and if they perform it on Thursday or Friday, they have to go to the hospital on the weekend. Yep, exactly. Because they're protecting the weekends as well. So how do you convince uh, surgeons that, you know, instead of their carefully crafted clinic and OR schedule that they have Monday through Friday, that now it should extend 
to Saturday, Sunday, remembering that surgeons bring revenue to hospitals. So hospitals are very often trying to court them <laughs> to take cases there. Amy, if I could jump in here, Eugene's yeah, example with uh, Eugene's example with uh, Cincinnati Children's, to just demonstrate the uh, the skew in the scheduling of elective surgeries. Once they smoothed, and this was just Monday through Friday. This was not a seven day a week thing. This was Monday through Friday. They were able to increase their volume with the same number of ORs and the same staff to the tune of about $130 million. So what, the other way to ask this is, is it worth it to the institution? Uh, is $130 million enough to convince a subset of surgeons that they should operate on a Thursday and they may have to round on a Saturday? I would add to that, let's forget even about, let me be, imagine that I'm a surgeon and I'm selfish. What is here for me? There are several carrots. First of all, if I'm, if I'm not salaried, being paid based on the number of cases I perform, I would make a lot of money if I smooth because I do more cases, as with an example with the carts from point A to point B. If I'm salaried, my overtime would uh, drop dramatically. At the Cincinnati Children's, despite this huge increase in surgical volume, their overtime dropped by 57% in the operating room. That's a good thing for me. I can continue on and on and on. Again, most of it, a lot of it is discussed with the book that is going to be published. Uh, I, I would provide you the cover of the book, uh, a public, written by the uh, veteran healthcare journalist, Mark Taylor, uh, Hospital uh, uh, Self uh, Thyself, Heal Thyself. It's going to be published this month, actually. It just, just, they, he interviewed a lot of emergency physicians, surgeons, hospital C-suite, nurses, etc. Uh, I can tell you, uh, first of all, I just mentioned a few carrots. And the good question to ask, if I would be in your audience listening to that, I would say, if it's so good, why not all the hospitals doing that? Uh, and my answer to that would be, uh, if surgeon, if, for example, uh, we would talk to uh, Peter, myself, other people, would talk to the surgeons and list all the benefits that they would receive from that. And I just mentioned them, uh, more, more, case, more cases, uh, reduced overtime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, improved uh, quality of care and safety. They, they like it. They like when you approach them with the data. The problem is that if you talk typically Typically, you're talking to the hospital C-suite. Their uh, way of thinking is that surgery is the main, you know, they bring in bread and butter to my hospital. I better not to touch it. Or if I go to surgeons without explaining them in detail their benefits, and typically C-suite not always is able uh, of doing that, then the surgeons would say, okay, you want me to change? I cross the street and go to another hospital with my patients. That is a problem today. Not enough of knowledge by surgeons how they benefit from that. Amy, another, if I could give you a different answer to that question, 
Uh, I want to mention two other things that can profoundly impact on boarding in the emergency department. One is a program of early discharge. NYU went from single-digit discharge before noon to about 42%, and they dropped their O to E for length of stay by 0.8, well, almost a day in the length of stay. That gave them a huge number of beds. And uh, of, uh, that is, for an institution that size, that's probably worth about a couple of hundred uh, million dollars. At Montefiore, where they had 30 boarders averaging in the emergency department, they did uh, focused on enhanced weekend discharges. And the end result was that, at least for a while, they wiped out boarding and they closed a 30-bed unit because they didn't need it. Uh, just by increasing a weekend discharge. And the ROI on that was about 70 mil. So all of these, uh, uh, at a lot of places where this happened, it happened because some senior leader decided, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to look at it. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to measure it. For instance, at NYU, the, the head of the hospitalist was told, you're in single digits. We want you by 30% within six months. You have to do it or we'll get somebody else to do it. They were at 42% in six months. Uh, same thing at Montefiore. The executive VP there took charge and said, this is what we're doing. We're going to increase uh, discharges on weekends. And he brought in the people that needed to make that happen to make that happen. So this is a story of leadership, but what the leader has to do is stand in front of people and say, I don't want you to work harder. I just want you to work differently. And if you work differently, if you overcome the cultural barrier of this is the way my day normally is, and you're willing to do it differently with smoothing, with early discharge, with weekend discharges, or with being able to get tests in the evening instead of having to wait till the next day to get stuff done, you get patients out quicker. The staff that's needed to take care of those patients is, is uh, smaller because you have at any given point of time a smaller number of patients unless you increase your business. Uh, and it's easier for the doc, and the hospital makes a lot of money by doing this. So it's, it's one of those things, that when you ask why not, it's just simply a culture of this is the way we do things, so don't bother me. What are some of the things that you think are good takeaways for a line doc to do, say, et cetera, to help in uh, the overall boarding discussion? I think of Malcolm Gladwell's the tipping point is you convince one person and then two and then five and then 20 uh, and you keep coming back and you always do it with grace and dignity. Uh, uh, but you just, you keep, you, you just push it. But uh, whining obviously uh, has not worked at least during the time I've been in emergency medicine, which is only for 44 years, uh, and, and, and asking for a whole flood of money in new beds that doesn't work either. But that's the tragedy of this is that you're just, just asking people to do something differently, and it's a benefit to them, it's a benefit to their staff, it's a benefit to the patients, and it's a benefit to the hospital. It may require outside regulatory of, of policies to make this happen. I don't know. But I do, I do believe that it was sort of the, the tipping point for how emergency departments are viewed and how this is now viewed as a hospital problem. You have to talk about it enough until it gets to enough people that I think it's 
truly, generally, generally acknowledged now that boarding in the emergency department is a problem with the hospital and not with the emergency department. But that took a Malcolm Gladwell effort of just plugging away until people get it. Yeah, and we have never thought about boarding as a surgeon's problem. That's why I think elective smoothing is a really um, kind of novel concept and something worth bringing up. We frequently said, like, hey, work with your hospitalist counterparts. So we're really talking the med surge, the med of med surge, you know, but we have never once, I think, said that this is an elective surgery scheduling problem. So, um, Eugene, I'd like to, you know, kind of have the same question to you. Like, what are some words for the line doc, like someone not necessarily in leadership, but that lives the truths of boarding day and day out. First of all, I think uh, it should be communicated to the doc, to the surgeons. I found surgeons mostly to be very receptive to the data. If you show them with their own data, how they are going to benefit and their patients, their nurses in the OR, which is hard to find nowadays, uh, how they are going to benefit. For example, at the Mayo Clinic, uh, some initial changes, not complete smoothing given, resulted in 41% increase in nurse retention. That's a big number. The nurses are no longer stressed. Second, you don't require every, every surgeon to change uh, his or her schedule. I wouldn't come to the chief of surgery and say, oh, I have a good idea how to mess with your schedule. That, that wouldn't <laughs> fly. Uh, but uh, I would say, if you have a peak on a particular day, how to make sure that some others, younger surgeons, would have a valley on the same day and would operate mm -hmm. on Friday, for example. That's a way to, to approach surgeons. And again, the experience suggests that there is a handful of surgeons who at the end of the day should change their schedule. It's not a majority or not a half of them. One thing people can do at their own institution just to start spitballing this stuff is just get basic information on how many patients are admitted each day to my institution and graph it out. How many people are discharged each day from my institution and graph it out. And, uh, uh, and how many of those come from the emergency department, which you can't do anything about. Uh, and how many come from things that are schedulable. That's the nature of electives, is that they're schedulable. You can pick the day you want to bring them in. And you can sit with a group of people and say, look at how skewed this is. What sort of things could we do such that it's not so skewed, so that, so that we have better capacity management? Uh, so that's a, a starting point in any place where you are. Because you, you'll hear that, oh, we're looking at that. Yeah, we've tried to do this. We're, we're, we're making things better. We're shifting some stuff around. But still, it's, uh, it's a dead zone in the operating room on Fridays. If you look yeah, at, yeah. The, <laughs> if you look at, the, uh, at our, uh, like our 1.5 million uh, uh, admissions, it, there's a huge spike on Mondays and Tuesdays, a half of that spike on Wednesdays, and then a fifth of that on Thursdays and Fridays. So we're not even talking it. You're talking about on day six or day seven. I'd like to use day four and day five. Yeah. And I, and I think Eugene puts it really nicely that it's not that, you know, you're changing surgeon schedules purely for boarding, but because it helps with their own operational efficiency of the ORs like that's the way to make it 
um, aligned incentives, but, you know, keep it within their department, their direct benefit as well. Um, so I think you have some good words of wisdom there. Now, Peter made just very important point about this starting. I would be happy, uh, Amy, to send you to uh, and through you to all your listeners who are interested, the simple Excel spreadsheet where people would just enter the number of elective surgeries and the number of uh, admissions through the ED on a daily basis for a month. And this Excel spreadsheet would calculate variability and would show which one is more variable, elective admissions or emergent admissions. And you would be surprised with the outcome. It is literally easier for me to predict when somebody will break the leg and come <laughs> to the emergency department that when elective surgery would take place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that actually is interesting. And cancellations and everything we know are um, big issues to, you know, the OR throughput and anesthesiologists and surgeons, of course, and of course, the staffing. So I want to, um, you know, I kind of want to wrap with both you guys. I think this has been a, a pretty interesting conversation, um, thinking about boarding, um, of course, in the hospital stance, but on, the, on how, how you guys skew it on the surgeons is actually, like I said, uh, something I hadn't heard before. So I want to say again, thank you guys for coming on chatting. Um, we'll put uh, links in the show notes so people can uh, look up more of your work, uh, especially for Dr. Litvak. Thank you so much for uh, allowing us to discuss this. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, this podcast does not last for about five hours or so. That is it for us this month. We hope you took something away from that conversation. And as I mentioned earlier, ER boarding, we really want to recoin as hospital boarding. So it's not just a emergency department issue. But I thought the specific discussion that Dr. Litvak had on surgeons and elective smoothing really highlighted their impact in a way I hadn't seen called out before. Now, this certainly doesn't mean to storm your surgeons and demand they start doing elective cases on the weekends, but hopefully it arms you with the discussion point for truly interdisciplinary solutions in your local area. And I think it's pretty fair to say that ER boarding, just like it's not just an ER issue, it's actually not just an ER and hospitalist issue either, but to involve some of your other specialties like surgery, um, which you may or may not have thought of in the past. Now, as always, the podcast is but just a short feature of content that we have available at ASAP now. Check out the full magazine for not only the full interview by Dr. Dark and Dr. Terry that I mentioned earlier, but also a great No Surprise Act briefing by Dr. Brault, a much needed practice guideline on anti-obesity medications like semaglutide and some of the pathology that we're seeing associated with the rampant use of these drugs in the emergency department. Um, there's a great clinical pearl on clavipectoral plane blocks for clavicle fractures. And of course, ASEP has a clinical policy on severe agitation with a great review by Dr. Thiessen. That is just a couple of the things in the magazine hitting your mailbox soon, but please go and check it out. Now, if you have an idea for the podcast, feel free to tweet us at ASEP now, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. So thanks everyone for joining us and we will see you all next time.